Hey everyone, welcome to the GTM News Show. Thanks for joining us. I got a couple special guests today. I got a, a, a two guests on my show, first time. Super excited and we're gonna do a little extended session here uh, because the topic's super important and um, I got some uh, two great uh, thought leaders on the topic. So the topic today is around demand generation and I have Liam and Grace Ann today from Storybook. Hey Liam, hey Grace Ann. Hi. How are you doing? Thanks for having Thanks us. For having us. So great having you both. Um, big picture, I'd love for um, maybe Grace Ann, if you'd like to kind of start us off with this kind of this idea of uh, demand generation. What is it, especially for folks out there, maybe a CEO or even even somebody on the sales team or customer su success team a little further away from B2B marketing um, that don't, you know, maybe seen this term come about. What is it and, and why is it important? Yeah. Um... I think for a lot of folks, when they think of demand gen, they tend to think of uh, the team that gets leads for the sales team. And as someone who started out in the sales world before getting into demand gen formally, I very much appreciate that perspective. And I'm always that advocate for, okay, great, but how is this translating into sales outcomes? But to think of demand gen as just the team that generates leads for the sales team is somewhat of a myopic view of what demand gen really is. Um, and I know Liam would attest to this. It is so much bigger than that. And if your perspective on demand gen is just to get leads, you're only going to get so far because you're really only accomplishing a piece of the picture. Um, in all honesty, it, demand gen has become really overcomplicated in our opinion in these last couple of years. Um, there's a lot of new theories going around out there, but there's still this like lingering misunderstanding about like what it really is and how to do it. And like, in essence, demand gen is a go-to-market strategy to move people towards considering you as a solution. And yeah, that sounds pretty simple when you think about it. It's much harder in practice, as we all know. Um, but really, it's about reaching your audience where they are delivering a strategic message through your content, and then providing a really low friction way for them to enter into a sales conversation with you when they're ready. And we like to simplify the whole process of thinking about this in terms of this analogy of what we call on-ramps and off-ramps. Um, and I'll pause there because I could get up on a soapbox, but Liam, I'll, I'll let you speak to sort of that on-ramps, off-ramps analogy. Yeah, and I I echo everything that that GA is saying, and I think the on ramps off ramps. It's really when you break it down at the end of the day, there, there's really two different sides of the program. On ramps, the way we talk about it, it's what GA just said. It's how do you reach your audience? Where are they spending their time? Where are they consuming content? Where are they getting education from? And knowing those places and being there is the first and often one of the more difficult and overlooked parts of the program. And then the other side of it is the off-ramps, which is really how are they actually entering into a sales conversation with you? And you know this can differ from company to company. It differs from the maturity of an industry. But at the end of the day, it is the way people opt in to get into a sales conversation. And demand generation tends to narrow this a little bit too much sometimes when you read a lot of what you see on LinkedIn, where it's equated to... Oh, well, demand gen means people come in through a demo request form. 
Not necessarily. That's one way people can enter into a conversation. They can respond to outbound messages that are timed right. They can meet you at an event and get a demo at the booth and kick off a conversation there. They can come in through a partner channel. At the end of the day, it's about how people naturally come into a conversation and how do you then make sure that you take that into account? Because where we often see demand generation going wrong is where they try and construct this elaborate and rigid thing where it's like, I'm going to hit them with an ad. I'm going to push them into a form. I'm going to nurture them with email. It's not about that. It's about where are they spending their time and are we there and are we educating them in those places? And it's how do they enter into a sales conversation and are we making that as easy for them to do as possible? Oh, I love that. I'm taking a bunch of notes over here and, um, just one thought on that, which I really appreciate. And I think folks that are listening, thinking about it from really the customer experience standpoint of like thinking about it from a buyer's journey versus a sales, you know, a buyer's process versus a sales process. Right. And, uh, I love that. I think that's, that's a super cool way of looking at it as far as putting folks, um, meeting them where they're at versus trying to construct some really sophisticated program that, um, only, you know, how it works and it doesn't match the the uh, expectations or the desires of the buyer, right? You're you're creating some uh, elaborate, um, almost manipulative program, right? To get people to kind of squeeze them through a process. Um, super interesting. I love for either of you, if you wouldn't mind jumping off and talking a little bit more about um, kind of the overcomplicated nature of it. Let's let's dive a little bit deeper into that. As as far as like you're mentioning campaigns in general, whether it's nurturing or um, yeah, ABM, all those different types of things. Curious your thoughts there. I think one of the reasons it's gotten overcomplicated is because people try and treat it like it's some scientific mathematical formula. They, they're trying to apply mm. science to human behavior, which ask any economist is not an easy thing to try and do. At the end of the day, like people are somewhat irrational. Timing is not always right. People will do things that are unexpected. And the more that you try to build this really elegant model around that, the more you're going to be disappointed. But the reason they do is because that's what looks good in a board deck. That's what looks good on a dashboard. If you're being given sometimes millions of dollars to try and create all of this pipeline, people are going to say, well, where where is the evidence that you're doing it? And over the years, people have built very sophisticated sometimes, very rigid, very mathematical proof that they're actually doing what they say they're doing. And like it started with like, oh, well, here are all of the leads. And then it got added onto it. Well, okay, well, now we need a way of showing that some of those leads are better than others. Okay, we're going to call them qualified leads. And it's like, how do we determine what a qualified lead is? Oh, I know. Why don't we like invent a score? And if they do all of these things, they'll hit a number. And like, you can see how it builds on itself until you end Mm -hmm. up with this extremely complex machine. And then truthfully and cynically, lots of tech vendors added into this where they are trying Mm -hmm. to invent their own proprietary metric and we've got a black box scoring model and we're incorporating ai and like you know the it kind of perpetuates itself and so you ended up with this industry that built over 20 years where there's lots of technology lots of acronyms lots of data and then data became like abundant and so it it became over complicated probably not intentionally but because there was there was lots of competing interests. There was lots of vendors trying to justify why that they really were. And all of it comes back to the same point. 
there is a big expectation that you need to show return for the efforts that you're putting in. You need to show that you've done your job, you prove that you did your job, and you can give some amount of forecastability into how well you're doing your job and how much more is coming in the future. Gracie, any additional thoughts there? I don't know that I have anything to add there. I think that was well said. <laughs> That's awesome. It was good. Yeah, I love that. And tie back even to what your original kind of contrasting demand gen versus lead gen. I, I think folks are listening. Uh, lead gen, you know, is, is almost predicated on that very like, hey, here's a specific metric. And we're all, you know, this is what we're all targeting for. With the absence of that, or maybe the broadening the focus, what other things do you all look for as leading, indica leading indicators? Or how do you define success in, in a more, uh, um, yeah, in a more broad focus? Yeah, I think it depends on where your program is at and sort of the evolution of your brand on um, something that we can start to unpack a bit more here, but what we refer to as the demand gen curve, it's really a spectrum of brand awareness. Um, and a lot of folks tend to think brand awareness is sort of a destination that you accomplish, but the reality is it's something you're never done with. It is ongoing. And like I said, it's a spectrum of first people just knowing who your brand is and then understanding what your brand does and then being able to recall your brand and then developing a brand preference. And Liam can happily get up on a soapbox <clears throat> about this. <laughs> but um, in terms of what success looks like, I think, you know, ultimately success in having developed really strong brand awareness, really strong brand understanding, brand recall, brand preference leads to a high level of inbounds. Demand's been created and mm. people are now coming to you. And that's like the ultimate goal of what success looks like. And I think that's what's led a lot of marketing teams down the path of measuring their success based on how many inbounds are generated. And while, yes, that's where we ultimately want to end up, if you don't have a lot of brand awareness yet and you're still working on developing brand understanding, for you, what success looks like is people just being interested enough in your product to enter into a sales conversation. So in that analogy of on-ramps and off-ramps, that might look like you know, conversions through outbounds, conversions through events, conversions through partners, some of those other off-ramps channels. So at the end of the day, what success really boils down to is people wanting to enter into a conversation with your brand, whether that's a sales conversation, if you have a sales process or a buying process that requires it, or if you have like a self-serve PLG model, you know, wanting to pursue that and, you know, go ahead and sign up. It's the method by which that happens is where we often see people tend to get hung up and just really wrapping around this idea of success equals more inbound demo requests. That means demand's increased and that's what success is. But reality is it depends a lot on where you are in terms of brand awareness. And a lot of B2B tech companies are still often in like the first half of that curve. Super great. Thanks for sharing. Um, I'm curious too, just kind of taking it back once again to um, maybe the, the pitfalls of, uh, of not focusing on, you know, this more, this demand gen, uh, folks that are, are kind of still in this lead gen mindset, any thoughts there on like, what, what will they continue to experience or, or what, you know, what would be the main driver of moving to this model outside of they're not hitting their marketing goals or they're not hitting revenue? Yeah. 
And I'm interested in your perspective on this, Liam, because, you know, lead gen's not a bad thing. It's just something that's really been misused lately. And one of the things we talk a lot about is you can still do lead gen effectively. You just really need to hone in on what is your purpose for doing it. And there's really two main goals um, for why you would do lead gen. And having clarity in that is what will lead your lead gen to being more effective. I, I, totally thoughts, agree with that. I, I mean, I completely agree with that. Like I think like lead gen, again, it's one of those things that got more and more and more complicated. And, and when you, if you set up the intentions wrong, you can see how these things can kind of go off the rails. Like a lot of the reasons lead gen tends to be ineffective in companies. If you kind of pull way back from it, like firstly, like leads at the end of the day are supposed to be people who want to talk or have some interest in and and like they're a desire to talk to the sales team i'm interested in the product i'd like to talk to the sales team or i have a need for this kind of product and i'm willing to talk to your sales team one of those two things is usually the case problem is the volume of those is usually quite small like demo requests usually make up for them for most companies unless you've got great brand awareness a pretty small amount of the leads that you're getting and so what marketers ended up doing was they kind of broadened the scope of what a qualified lead was. So they tried to go like, well, they haven't asked for a demo, but they've been reading a lot of stuff on the website. So we kind of think they might be interested. So we're also going to call them qualified. But then we kind of got a little bit obsessed as we tend to do in B2B marketing with scale. Like we want bigger numbers, we want more. And the problem is you end up kind of diluting things in order to get there. So now you're like, well, we scan their badge at an event and if they were at that event they must be interested so that's also a qualified lead and you just start getting watered down and diluted and mm. and so legion ended up kind of becoming this kind of like too broad a grouping and the age-old thing that you see is that marketing hands over what they call a qualified lead to sales sales takes one passing look and goes this person doesn't even know who we are or how i got that information what makes them qualified and then that whole cycle goes round and round and round and the other side of it is that the way we measure it also creates a lot of, not abuse, but misuse. Like if you're goaling a marketing team on leads, which a lot of marketing teams are, or qualified leads, they have an incentive to get as many qualified leads. And if you don't have demo requests, well, you know, come up with an elegant way of calling other things qualified leads. Like the bias to to make yourself hit the number. At the end of the day, what marketing should be incentivized to do and what demand gen particularly is pipeline like you want qualified pipeline and revenue um but you also don't want to bias it to only being like you don't want to kind of have it be sales against marketing which you often see as well and like mm -hmm. you know like gm mentioned outbound is an effective channel and if you pit marketing against that channel they're going to try and not support it they're going to be doing competitive things and like these are all the reasons that legion kind of turned into this kind of sort of almost like th there's eye rolling when you mention legion because most leads are are not real leads they're just contact information that was scooped up from a farm fill or whatever way you built it out but Lead gen can be really good. You can use it to build a good database of people that you can educate about your product, or you can use it to try and find people who actually are raising their hand and interested in talking to the sales team. But everything outside of that is where the abuse tends to happen. And I think one point you made around like developing a database to educate them, like that is in essence what 
nurturing should be. And and I think somewhere along the way, this concept of nurturing has become, well, we can just nurture people to oblivion and then they'll be ready to buy. Like there was this this mechanism that you just feed someone with enough content and you can like almost force them to need your product. And the reality is like, if they don't need your product, they don't need your product. Like you, there's not a lot you can do to make someone, particularly in B2B, I think consumer buying tends to have the ability to be somewhat emotional, somewhat impulsive, but B2B buying tends to be very pragmatic. And and so unless they have a need for your product, like no amount of content that you serve them is going to get them to that like buyer ready, like Goldilocks state. But the real goal of nurturing content is sort of back to that awareness spectrum of what you're trying to do is educate them on what your product is, what it does, what are the things they should be looking for in their own situation that your product might be able to solve so that in their day-to-day life of running their team and building their programs, as they come across this problem, they now know, oh, wait, so-and-so can solve that. So that's really what the idea of good nurturing should be doing. It's educating them on what your product does, problems it solves, who it's for, when they might need it, so that when they do, they're already armed with that information. And and here's the scary part for a lot of teams is that most, if not all of that education tends to take place before they become a lead. I mean, you look at all the stats out there, how much of the buyer journey is complete before they ever talk to a salesperson. But because we're often gold on things like lead generation and because we want everything to be as, as measurable as possible, what people try and do is they try and get the lead first, get you in the database, and now we're going to start educating you. You see the same thing where you visit the pricing page and, well, we're not going to tell you the pricing until you fill out a form and talk to our sales team. It's like, but I I need to know the pricing before I know if I'm ready to talk to a sales team. We have this kind of incentive to have all of it happen inside of our, our walls where we can measure it. But the truth is like most of that will happen outside of that. So good demand generation is more and more becoming, how do I reach them? How do I educate them where they are so that when they do decide to opt in, whether that's to get more content that entertain them or to talk to a salesperson, they're already aware of the product. They already understand what it does instead of trying to do it from the inverse, which is like, let's just catch your data first and then we'll tell you everything you need to know. That That's not how the buyer journey works at all. I love it. Thank you both for sharing that. A couple things that, that stood out first. I keep on this word uh, self uh, selfish keeps coming to mind that that we've designed our our processes uh, for us, not for the buyer. And uh, and as the world gets more competitive, as budgets get slashed, as more, especially in the B2B world, more platforms come out, globalization, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you, you, have, uh, you can't be as selfish uh, to be able to compete, right, ultimately. Um, and you shouldn't be, because I think that's not how you really win in the end. But um, another thing that stood out, too, if I'm hearing you all correctly, it's, it's, it's that, oh, it's almost a semantic or definition of what a lead is. That's kind of the problem where lead generation, let's get more leads. Well, it could be a low intent lead or it could be really a high intent lead. And, and how we, you know, what we're focusing on is, is, is kind of really important there because a lot of lead gen is these low intent leads, right? People are not ready to buy um, versus focusing on how do we get high intent, like Grace and you are mentioning, like folks that are like inbound, right? Coming to us, uh, super cool. I'm curious as well, um, 
you also mentioned, and love for you to talk a little bit more about this. You mentioned, I heard partnership programs, I heard outbound. I think a lot of people think of marketing as like running ads, maybe making content, maybe some branding. Um, whereas marketing can influence not only the entire buyer's journey, but also um, partnerships and outbound and helping sales. Tell me more about that and kind of the different maybe programs. I know everyone talks about them differently, but what are kind of the different areas that you can you can leverage to create demand that's not just like maybe the typical generate leads through ads or SEO or whatever? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the longest pathway to answer your question, but I, I have a reason for it. <laughs> Sweet. So, um, so there's kind of a running joke in B2B that nobody in B2B marketing went to school for marketing. I'm one of those nerds who did. So I love the academic well, side of it. Here we go. <laughs> but something, but back to that whole like awareness curve that Grace Ann was mentioning. Like, I think it's a really important to, to fully understand this. Like this is not sort of new theory. This is what marketing has always been built on. And demand is very, very directly correlated with where the level of awareness for your brand actually is. And so, you know, if you're at the back, like, and again, kind of going back to it, like there's, I've never heard of your company. That's as low as it gets. There's, I recognize your logo. I think I've seen you somewhere, but then beyond that, it's like, I know what you do. I understand the problems you solve. I think of you when I have those problems, but most companies are often way, way back at that early stage where they don't mm. have strong awareness in the market. The vast majority of startups don't have awareness because well, why would they? They're startups, they're young, they're new. They tend not to have like deep pockets. And so demand tends to not exist. No one's looking for your product because they've, they've never heard of you. Like unless you're in a hot category, you're just not getting demand. So outbound and partnerships are extremely important at that stage because outbound is frankly where most early stage companies end up getting all of their initial pipeline. You're just knocking on doors and you're being opportunistic going, can I have a moment of your time to tell you what I do and see if it's of interest to you? That requires no demand. That requires convincing, compelling messaging, understanding their problems. And so a lot of early wins in companies come through the outbound channel. Similarly, good partnerships, you're borrowing from their credibility. You're borrowing from their brand awareness where they're saying, hey, we recommend this vendor. They're a partner of ours. So you're sort of piggybacking off of the brand awareness they have. And marketing, long-term marketing is to try and not offset those, but to try and complement those with your own credibility, your own brand awareness. And so this is where I think people unfairly look at stuff like outbound and partnerships as like a competitor to marketing. Oh, well, marketing should be doing its job because they're doing, they're hitting their numbers. But it's often just, that's how people get into your sales process, because if they've never heard of you, you have to get to them and you have to find your way in front of them. And it's only over time that as you increase that awareness, as you build more recognition in the market, then more people are going to go, you know, who should we should talk to about this? Oh, we'll go talk to like so-and-so. Like that takes an enormous amount of time and it can often take an enormous amount of money if you want to try and do that in the short term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and if I were to just sort of put a bow on that, like at the end of the day, the goal of marketing is to reach your audience where they are, deliver the right message and content, and then provide a low friction way for them to enter into a sales conversation. So where all of those are and what that looks like is going to vary depending on where you're 
at in terms of your level of brand awareness. And oftentimes when you're really early on in that, a lot of that is rooted in things like partnerships, outbounds, potentially events, things of that nature. Super great. I love to hear uh, as well, kind of uh, even post-sale, um, what opportunities do you see with like customer marketing or just customers in general to create more demand top of funnel? So the funny thing about customer marketing is for a long time, it actually, if not even for a long time, it's still probably one of the most neglected types of marketing because it's kind of one of the ones that you don't often get that much credit for. And, you know, marketers tend to follow where they get credit and you tend to go where your measurements are. Over the last six months, certainly, particularly as the market slowed down, a lot of leadership teams have started to redirect their marketing teams towards customer marketing because it's not about new logo acquisition. It's about retention and growth within your existing customer base. So kind of now there's a lot of marketers, we talk to a bunch of them, where they're learning to be customer marketers for the first time ever. And it's a whole different type of marketing. But in one way that it isn't, it's, it's still at the end of the day about deepening a relationship by reaching people. Mm. Like it's about continuing to educate your customers. It's showing that you're a partner to them, that you're also still there. It's not just, Hey, we got your money. Now we're, now you're on your own, go figure it out. And I think uh, the one big oversight is that you'd be shocked at how many customers come in off the back of being former customers at a different company. Like, like you ask any sales team, there's nothing better than someone who was a former customer, moved jobs, and then came in. It's one of the fastest sales you'll ever have. They're already pre-sold. They just want another version of the same contract. And like that comes from happy customers. So like there is an incentive to keeping customers happy and, you know, marketing can do a really good job of that. It shouldn't just walk away as soon as the sale is done. Yeah, I uh, love that. Thanks for sharing. And I think in my experience that customer advocacy in general, like customer marketing and getting folks to adopt and expand and retain, super important, obviously, in this market. And then that advocacy part, too, is just something that time and time again, it's always the thing we forget about um, getting referrals, getting recommendations, getting that champion that at one, you know, you had at one company and they moved to another one, like you mentioned, gold, uh, especially in uh, we all know referrals like are the you know the best possible, highest converting, generally speaking, highest converting, the best customers, usually the most ideal fit. Um, so thanks for thanks for sharing on that. I love any additional thoughts you have on um, and maybe Grace Ann, I'd love to hear more about the low friction uh, ways you get folks into into the pipeline. Kind of that that third that third area yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. Um... So I think, you know, when it comes to reducing as much friction as possible in that process, it's it's always just a whole bunch of little things that sometimes are an afterthought that oftentimes we don't tend to think, you know, make all that much of a difference. But like, let's say, for example, um, just our typical demo request process. And I know, you know, Liam was just talking about this earlier today. Um about how when folks fill out a demo request form, it's because they've got interest. They want to know, maybe you don't have your pricing. They just need to know your pricing. Or oftentimes they've already decided, hey, this is something that I need. I just want to get started. Let me talk to someone. I'm ready to get going. But we make people fill out a form and then we make them wait, you know, five, 10, sometimes five, 10 hours, sometimes a whole day to get back to them. And it's just like, why are we doing that? 
<laughs> why not let folks schedule um, immediately to talk to someone, get that scheduled, you know, freeing up just, or sorry, releasing friction in that process. For example, tools like Chili Piper are great, you know, at being able to schedule that in real time on your site, you know, while sort of allocating and navigating that um, sales handoff process. Same thing on outbound too, when you're reaching folks um, and connecting with them. I'm a huge advocate for things like Calendly or Chili Piper um, mm. and alleviating that back and forth of scheduling um, that can sometimes happen. So it, things like that, that just add efficiencies in your process um, and just making it as easy as possible for someone to convert. You know, don't bring them in through a form, make them wait six hours to hear from anybody. By the time they do, you're asking them four to five more questions just to see if this is really worth your time, if they have a large enough this, or they have enough budget, or they have a strategic initiative. And it's just, we make the barriers sometimes, back to that concept of selfish, you know, we make the barriers to getting into a conversation sometimes too high. Um, and that's not to say that everyone who's ever interested in our product is going to be a right fit for that product. Um, but I think it's, you know, a matter of finding that middle ground to where, you know, we're maintaining good quality data, but at the same time, reducing as much friction as possible in that process for buyers. I'll give you a couple of stats that Chili Piper released this morning that are stuck in my head. So they released a report on they did a survey of customers to see how long it took them to respond to demo requests. And firstly, they'd released stats before where if, if you reach someone within five minutes of them submitting a demo request, they are 21 times more likely to turn into pipeline than if you get them after 30 minutes. Like just that window alone is incredibly impactful. And they found that 80% of the people that they surveyed did not respond back within five minutes. So most people aren't doing it. What they found was 28.1% didn't respond to the demo request at all, <laughs> like never even answered it. And so like, it's one of those, like, you know, we've seen this, we talked to a lot of customers who've gone through this as well, where the reasons that they do are often like when you look at it at face value are sometimes like totally wrong and, and not just selfish, but they're, they're, they're not even thinking about it through the lens of like, like, am I, could I be making a mistake? Like we've seen examples where uh, sales teams will try and put up as many guardrails as they can before you reach the AE because they want to try and protect their time. They don't want to waste, mm -hmm. you know, time getting demos with tire kickers, all of that stuff, but they'll end up over creating process like we've seen examples where um you know like firstly we've seen everywhere you, you have to enter a business address you won't be allowed to fill in the form unless you do that one is one alone but there's also ones where you know people will self-select information like tell us how much revenue how many customers you have mm -hmm. what platforms you use and then based on that information we'll decide whether or not to even let you have a demo we've had customers this has happened to us as well where we've filled out a form and been immediately rejected so we're not even going to give you a demo and sometimes that's based on self-reported data. Like, I mean, if someone fills out a form, let's face it, people don't always spend a whole lot of time filling out a form. They just go, yeah, yeah, this one, well, first drop down, whatever, hit submit. And to be rejected before ever even checking that data, like those are just friction points where you're, you're trying to protect your sales team, but what you could be doing is leaving enormous pipeline on the table purely mm. because you're, you're banking that someone fill out a form accurately. That's, that's a hell of a gamble, especially now.
Thanks for sharing, Liam. Completely agreed. Uh, you broke up there uh, for a second with those stats. Can you can you share again those stats? Just, oh, yeah. Just make sure we got yeah, that for the recording. I, can you hear me clearly enough now? Yep, you're good. Yep, okay. just those stats broke up for a second. Yep. So Chili Piper released a report where they they went through, I think, about 100 demo requests that, to test what the response time was. And they had shown data before that said that if you respond to a demo request within five minutes of them submitting, they're 21 times more likely to turn into pipeline than if you get to them after 30 minutes. Like not even like two hours, four hours next day. Like that's the difference between five and 30 minutes. And what they found in the report was that 80% of the people that they surveyed did not respond within five minutes at all. So the bar is extremely low already. What they found that was more damning though was that 28.1% of people never responded at all. <laughs> Just mm -hmm. straight up didn't answer back on the demo request. So like, whatever we're doing there's enormous friction and sometimes we're just just ignoring people who are asking for a demo which is incredible to me thanks for sharing those are yeah those stats are staggering and i remember the beginning of my career like 15 years ago i was actually in sales similar to you grace Ann, and and uh, that was like the biggest thing right like when anybody somebody calls it's like you got to get back to them like as quickly as possible and i remember everyone was you know um you know even even in 15 years ago things were even slower and people's attention spans were longer, like everything, the internet wasn't as crazy as it is now and and uh, there wasn't as many options, et cetera, et cetera. I would love for you to, like, how would you help reframe the narrative for the sales org or the rest of the org on, hey, let's either reduce our barriers of qualification, that way we're not leaving any money on the table. Um, because I know I immediately can think of, you know, you mentioned earlier sales teams wanting to make sure it's qualified. The sales org is usually one of the most highest paid orgs, right? So as from a business objective, from a business decision, you're looking at, hey, let's protect their time. Um, Alyssa, any ideas you have all as far as reframing that? Because I think that is a really important like friction point um, in, in organizations. What are your thoughts, GA? Yeah, I'm trying to organize them. Um, I how do you mean, get I their buy-in? Yeah, how do you ultimately get the sales teams buy-in or the executive teams buy-in? I'm like, hey, let's let's put our pricing on the website. Let's put, yeah. let's get scheduling faster, right? These types of areas that. Yeah, I mean, on the notion of time, like I think that's just it. Like the sales team's time is valuable, so I think leveraging automation where you can and you know the power of tools you have like the in the stats that liam just mentioned you know it's very possible to automate that follow-up response through tools like outreach and sales loft um you know cadencing folks into your crm and then you know automating that follow-up so that you can have that happening immediately or maybe you do it through a marketing automation tool um but you know on the the point of saving the sales team's time like there is sometimes you know additional time required in order to just see that lead come in think about who it's assigned to maybe do a quick bit of research and then sequence that person just check everything and then send that email out maybe you need to grab a scheduling link and put that in the email so i think sometimes you know that's one of the things that makes sales teams resistant to having to go through that process on low quality leads um and so i think there's a lot of friction and just time suck for sales teams that can be alleviated there by thinking about, you know, what can you automate within the process? Of course, automation can be a double-edged sword. Um, <laughs> you can't automate everything. You can't replace that human interaction. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I would say, you know, think about what you can automate there. Um, you know, as we've talked about already, tools like Chili Pepper are really powerful for respecting the sort of assignment and regionality that you have already set up across your sales team to be able to allow you to schedule right on the form, like right on your site. No need to submit the request through the form. You can just schedule it and have that, you know, scheduled against the regionality and the, the teams that you've already got set up. Because um, I know that's sometimes another concern too, is when things come in, who are they going to? Is it being routed in the right places? Um, so I, I think those would be some of the first places I would start to look. I think from the buy-in point of view, I I really think it's increasingly more and more important that marketing leaders have to advocate on the part of the audience. In the same way that CS leaders are always putting the customer first and how will the customer feel about this? Most of this friction, it it's not ill-intentioned. It's because someone was acting on behalf of their team. The sales leaders are trying to protect their team's time. They're trying to restrict noise and wasting seller's time, which is valuable. A lot of it, and the more you're thinking internally and from the internal point of view, the more you're going to put the prospect last. And a lot of the reasons there's so much bad B2B marketing and so much bad demand gen is because of exactly that fact. We treated them as the last and least important part of the entire process, which is crazy when you think about it, but it's very easy for it to happen when you work internally. It's like, oh, well, we need more data. We need to get their contact information. We can't get their Gmail address because we can't append that with our data. We need to get their business address. And like all of the reasons are very easy to justify. And someone has to be going, yeah, but look how hard that was for them. Like, did they need to? Like, what if they wanted to get to a seller quicker? Like, it's happened to us, it's happened to us a few times where like we've been former customers of a product, moved to a different company, and then we wanted to try and bypass all of that sales process and couldn't. Like we've literally filled out a form and said, previous customer, we've already bought this tool at a different company. We just want to get to like an A, but we still had to go through a demo. We still had to go through a discovery call. And like that frustration is incredible friction. And like we were lucky enough that in some of those cases, we knew people who were VPs of the organization. And we just shot them a note on LinkedIn going, can you just skip me past all of that? But if you, most people don't have that luxury. And like that's, someone has to advocate for that because when you map it out and you walk someone through in exactly the same way that a product team will do user recordings, they'll watch people use the product. They'll go, yeah, they're getting stuck in that section. Marketing is supposed to be doing the same. Like, look how hard you made it for someone. All they wanted was to learn what you did and you made that more difficult and hid it behind. They wanted to learn what your pricing was. And you hid that behind a form. They wanted to talk about pricing, but you made them go to three meetings with SDRs and discovery and basically do a quiz before they were allowed to get on that. Like all of that's insane and someone should be advocating for it. And it's usually probably and more reasonably marketing. So good. I love that for, I wrote that down. Uh, marketing should be the advocate uh, for the audience. And, and I love that because I think you're so right. There is, there is uh, no one's considering that first of all, you know, the cost of acquiring the attention of your ideal customer and, and how costly that is. And then also, um, you know, the more barriers you have, the, the less results you're going to get. And ultimately I think tying this in, especially, uh, you know, from the business objective standpoint of like in this market of, you know, we can't we can't grow at all costs, um, unfortunately, and, and you you have to be str strategic that uh, the way to be efficient is ultimately 
to make a better buyer experience, right? It's what I'm hearing. And how do you tap into just lowering the barriers, um, make it more frictionless, match what the expectations are of, of the, of the buyer and the audience. Love to hear. We have a couple minutes left before we have to wrap up here. Any take, any final takeaways, anything we haven't, we haven't missed anything that's like pitfalls, especially on the demand curve. I love that kind of analogy of, you know, the maturity of an organization. Maybe if there's a couple pitfalls people should avoid in each stage, love to hear those or, or maybe even opportunities in 2023 for folks. Yeah, I think, you know, the opportunities for folks in 2023 are really two things, understanding their audience and understanding their program. I think with this shift in mindset from grow at all cost to efficiency, I think it's an opportunity to really stop, take a step back, make sure you really understand your audience and you really understand your program. And with that audience understanding, I think it's, you know, it's comprised of a couple of different things, but very importantly, you know, researching where they spend their time. It's not just about serving the ads on channels that provide the best targeting. Um, it's about being where they actually spend their time. And, you know, this can be channels like LinkedIn. It can also be industry publications, podcasts, communities. Like it's really a matter of where they spend their time. And I think the pitfall there that oftentimes marketers fall into is thinking of it through the lens of where we spend our time and not where that audience is spending their time. Um, and on the other side of that, you know, knowing your program, I think knowing those off ramps and understanding how your buyers are accessing them is really important. Not just that inbound one, but all of the ways that your audience is entering into a sales conversation rather than trying to force prospects down the channel that marketers most want to report on. Love that and completely agree. I think uh, the biggest problem with marketers, sellers, anyone in the good of market organization is that we're usually have not been the buyer. I think you said that best, like Grace Anna, like we have not been in their shoes, right? And so we have to work super hard at getting ourselves in their shoes. Liam, any final takeaways um, before we wrap up? Um, of course, my camera's suddenly <laughs> no worries. Suddenly glitching out. Um, I, I don't think I could have said it better than that, to be perfectly honest. I think that sums it up really, really well. I love it. Yeah, I, I do as well. I think the, uh, yeah, having that empathy, being selfless, and then ultimately, how do we match our buyer's journey, um, whatnot. Super great uh, chatting with you both. Thanks so much for coming on. How can folks connect with you online? Yeah, so you could reach out to either of us on LinkedIn, um, or you could um, get, get to our site on storybookmarketing.io. But if you want to talk to us directly, LinkedIn's going to be the best place. Awesome. Thank you both again for coming on. Thank you for having us. It was a us. pleasure.